Good afternoon, everyone across the country. I'm Tim Phillips, president of Americans for Prosperity. Thank you for joining us. It's a crucial time for the country. So much is happening in Washington, D.C. and across this great place. I, I was in Texas earlier this week with our Americans for Prosperity teams in Houston and Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, where they're coming out of the pandemic and getting this country moving again. I know in North Carolina, uh, they're doing the same thing, working to push our nation forward. But there are big threats, big policy battles happening in Washington, D.C. We have a very special guest to, to talk about these challenges we're facing as a nation and what you can do about it. Uh, to do just that, to kick us off is our North Carolina Americans for Prosperity State Director, Chris McCoy. Chris, take it away. Thanks, Tim. And thanks everyone for joining us today. We have a really special guest uh, with us today, um, Congressman Dan Bishop. He is our Congressman for the 9th Congressional District here in uh, the great state of North Carolina. So Congressman Bishop, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. It's my pleasure to do that, Chris. We've worked together a long time, so it's great to see you and Tim. Good to be with you guys uh, today. I'm delighted to have a chance to engage in this conversation. Yeah, it's great seeing you. So listen, let's, without further ado, let's jump off into this. Uh, you know, recently we, we had a large uh, spending bill come through, the uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that consequently a lot of it didn't go directly to uh, the stimulus for citizens of the country. And there was a lot of wasteful spending in there. Uh, can you give me a little bit of, of your perspective on, on that bill, how it came to be and what you foresee the impacts being down the road? Yeah, Chris, it's... Um... There seems to be a pattern emerging very quickly for a president uh, who, who, said, who ran for office on the notion that we need to be more unified. Uh, Democrats couldn't be proceed, proceeding in a less unifying manner. Uh, that, you know, we, we had 9%, I think, of that uh, total bill that was devoted to public health uh, measures in connection with the COVID pandemic. It purports to be a stimulus or, or the Rescue Act uh, because of the pandemic, but the economy is recovering quite nicely. And what it turns out to be is a tremendous amount of government spending, uh, debt increasing government spending that is designed to pay off traditional Democratic constituencies. $4 billion in, in aid for New York City, 92% uh, of the municipal indebtedness of San Francisco paid off. And yet even in the distribution of those kinds of funds, they used a formula that was designed to reward those states, those blue states where governors had shut them down completely. So North Carolina, for example, receives about $580 million less than it would have under the more traditional allocation approach. But the main thing is that it's not a COVID, it's not a pandemic-related bill, even on you know, the notion of education, about 5% of the education spending this bill provides for will be spent before during this fiscal year. So it, it, it pays for immense amounts of spending into the out years. And Chris and Tim, I always think it's helpful when we start throwing around billions and trillions to pause just a moment to remind people what that is. A trillion dollars is $8,000 for every household in America. So when you hear figures, for example, like Medicare and Social Security anticipated to run a deficit of $108 trillion over the next 30 years, understand that means $800,000 of indebtedness for every household. Trillions are not to be trifled with. 
and it's a massive uh, payoff to uh, political payoff, but it has almost nothing to do with the pandemic. And the better, far better course would be to encourage a recovering economy by relaxing the government restrictions that have so limited uh, our ability to function, the ability of businesses, large and small, to function effectively over the last year. Yeah, Congressman Bishop, you make a great point. The nation just came through a razor close election. The Senate is divided 50 to 50. The House is separated roughly five or six seats between the two parties. Presidential, very close. And, and now really isn't the time for, for one side to just jam a long-term ideological wish list, which is really, you pointed out, it's, it's what it is. And that's why it is so disappointing to see this happening. I, I was really um, impressed that your Republican caucus in the House uh, to a member voted against this wasteful $1.9 trillion bill. I, I tell you, I think that's great for the, the, the Republican caucus in the House. In the Senate, the same thing happened. It was a straight party line vote. And, and now is a moment for our country to come together. And it's not gonna come together if we see continued uh, extreme ideological legislation that's just rolling down the pike. However, uh, it looks like that is what we're seeing. C could you give folks watching a little insight into this so-called infrastructure bill that apparently is another multi-trillion dollar spending bill. It's this time I, I, we're hearing it's gonna have some tax increases. Uh, could you give folks watching a sense of what we think is coming from Biden, Schumer and Pelosi? I'll do that, Tim. And you know, to begin that one, they, they characterize it as an infrastructure package. And I think it is probably true that one of the most consensus ideas is that um, there are certain things government builds, uh, roadways, bridges, things like that. And those in investments are generally supported. And so the, 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 the buzzword infrastructure tends to attract support in a bipartisan way. But uh, there, there are a lot of questions about what you do with a genuine infrastructure bill in the current moment where we've got so much indebtedness and so much recent additions to the indebtedness because of the pandemic. But this, the fact sheet that the White House put out on this, um, on this thing that they call an infrastructure package isn't one at all. It's very similar to the $1.9 trillion bill we just talked about. $2.25 trillion bill coming. Uh, Democrats can pass it under the reconciliation procedure with a bare majority of votes so they can ram it through with the vice president's vote to, in the evenly split Senate instead of having to overcome a filibuster. But about depending on the way, uh, a couple of things you might include or, dis, or exclude. Traditional infrastructure is about five, maybe ten percent of the package. So bridges, roads, airports, uh, waterways, those kinds of things that everybody uses. And instead, what you see is this phrasing I found that it says at the very first page that the president's plan will unify and mobilize the country. But then the detail, devil in the details a sentence later, says the plan prioritizes addressing longstanding and persistent racial injustice. The plan targets 40% of the benefits of climate and clean infrastructure investments to disadvantaged communities. So it's, it's kind of a Trojan horse for the Green New Deal on the one hand, which is totally impractical and, and, and takes up all of this 
highly racialized rhetoric about uh, uh, redistributive justice. And it's just a, I mean, it's a, it is, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's, it's just not, it's not an infrastructure package. It's another budget busting payoff for uh, ideological reasons. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the Green New Deal. We're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of billion dollars, of billions of dollars being spent. And what it's going to do is pile more regulation, more red tape, higher utility bills on Americans. That's what we're looking at. And, and I, when I, Congress, when I think about these higher utility bills or higher gas prices, which is the absolute desired result, the, the desired ideological result from the left of this Green New Deal, who does that hurt the most? Well, it hurts the disadvantaged folks that they, that, that they say they want to help. I mean, I, you know, I think about seniors on a fixed income or I think about that single mom with a couple of children trying to make it and she's paying higher utility bills or four dollar a gallon or, or heaven forbid, five dollar a gallon gas. It, it's a it's a terrible result for the country. But but even worse is what it does to people hanging on at the margins. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because the Green New Deal that's in here, it, it's extreme, again, not related to the pandemic at all. It's just an extreme ideological uh, vision that they want to put into practice. And, and ladies and gentlemen watching, uh, make your voice heard. If you click the I volunteer link along the chat of this Facebook Live, just click that I volunteer link. It'll take about 45 seconds to a minute. You can make your voice heard to your two United States senators and to your House member. They need to hear from you. It's a big moment for the country. Take the time to do that. You know, I know there's a lot going on. There's a lot of distractions out there. But in Washington, some of the most consequential and, frankly, horrific policies that I've seen in decades are, are on the, the cusp of, of coming into being if we don't take action right now. And before I turn it back to Chris, Congressman, for the next question, let me ask you just a brief follow up on this. If I'm not mistaken, they're also looking at massive tax increases. Can, can you shed a little light on what they're looking at? Uh, on the tax front in this next big spending and package? So a trillion and a half in new corporate taxes immediately. They're talking about another trillion and a half in, in uh, taxes on investment income and uh, uh, wealth to come, maybe additional death taxes conceivably. But even in this package, a tremendous reversal of the changes that were made in 2017 to bring uh, United States corporate tax rates in line with all our competing countries. I mean, it was the highest in the world, and they want to go back the other direction. You know, Tim, if I could say, really, this what this bill <laughs> comes down to is a memory test. If you want to go back to the Obama stimulus, the so-called Recovery Act, and you want to remember the recovery summer and, and cash for clunkers and, oh, yeah. uh, and Solyndra, it's a, it's, a, it's a great analogy. So, Lender, you're going to see exactly the same type of energy and energy uh, incentives, uh, 100 and something, 174, oh, I forgot, I'm going to quote the wrong number, a, an enormous subsidy for electric vehicles. Yeah. It, it's just the same retread. And do we want that, you know, persistent, stagnant economy, remember secular stagnation, we couldn't possibly recover and have uh, excellent growth without a magic wand, the pre President Obama said, or would you rather go back and think about the Trump economy before the pandemic? We cut taxes, reduced regulation, you saw a thriving economy in which, in which uh, wages of average individuals you know, made their greatest gains in decades. 
it's it's so easy to see this is the wrong way to go and that it is exactly it's a rope a dope just like that was there were no shovel ready jobs it was a, it was a, it was all about um, you know paying off uh, ideological commitments and uh, and it and it made people it made average people much worse off and you'll see the same thing here. In fact, the one thing you'll probably see in addition, because we've got an economy recovering out of a pandemic, it still has that foundation that uh, we got, we are built for it in the President Trump's administration. You're probably gonna see inflation, which is a tax on everybody. That is a tax on the, he said, President Obama says he's not gonna increase anybody's taxes. It doesn't make $400,000, hogwash. The tax on corporations is gonna hurt everybody's got a 401k. Uh, and, and the inflation it's going to drive is going to hurt everybody, and, and it's a form of tax. Chris, go ahead. Uh, you know, Congressman, speaking of that, um, and really digging into the inflation piece to it, and you know, what what's the actual cost of, of this uh, infrastructure bill coming down the line? Um, you know, we talked about the Green New Deal aspects that are playing into this, and how those regulations are going to weigh on you know, the middle class, right, increased costs across the board. But also, you know, something that you know, we're talking about is the increased um, uh, tax rates that corporations are going to experience and even individuals are going to experience. And, you know, that impacts workers' wages. It impacts the availability of jobs during a pretty critical time in our country coming out of this pandemic and, and the economy where it's at now. And there's also another component that I'm reading about in this as well, where you're having bits and pieces of the PRO Act being pulled in where, you know, like the financial impact or um, uh, penalties for corporations might be in here. Can you speak a little bit to that and maybe the, the total impact that this could potentially have on, you know, middle class, working class Americans? Uh, Chris, you're right. The, the White House's uh, fact sheet also included paying homage to the so-called PRO Act, you know, the, the union, big union uh, constituency payoff. Uh, and and the, the, the big thing there is, you know, North Carolina is a right to work state, meaning that uh, as long as I've been alive, uh, North Carolina law has provided that people aren't, wouldn't be forced to join unions. They could work without being you know, a union shop. And, uh, and many other states have done that. States, states have the probably the most thriving economies in the country right now are all right to work states. The PRO Act would prohibit that, right? It would write out the, the, uh, the uh, option of uh, individual states to go that path. Uh, it would do grievous damage to the notion of the independent contractor as opposed to where you have people working in the gig economy. Uh, so it's antagonistic to that. It would damage that. Uh, you mentioned tax rates. Um, it's amazing. It, People on the left always think if they just get the tax uh, policies punitive in the right way, they're going to suddenly produce a, a, a plethora of growth. It never works out that way. But this time, the way they think they're going to do it is last time everybody acknowledged before President Trump that our corporate tax rate was a, was a, you know, was causing uh, corporations based in America to leave all their earnings abroad because they'd be t taxed if they repatriated them to the United States. So. President Trump reduces that tax rate to 21% for corporations. And you see basically repatriated amount of cash uh, in, or income from abroad coming back in the United States about tripling. And uh, it's been an enormous boon to the economy. They think this time we're gonna jack the rate back up 
and and and, and reverse that effect. But we're going to punish companies. We're going to uh, impose a minimum tax. We're going to tax them wherever they earn the income. It, it's just going to make the United States the worst. Uh, the, the, the country in the world that has the worst incentives for corporations to, to be located and produce here. And, it, and that hurts people. That hurts uh, consumers. It hurts employees. And, uh, and that, unfortunately, that, you know, they never seem to learn. They just think this time we're going to get, uh, we're going to ratchet up taxes or we're going to do it in a way they can't hide from us. <laughs> uh, it, and you, the, the point about tax rates, it is a little counterintuitive, but it's worth pointing out once again, you know, the Reagan tax cuts when I was a young man back in the early 80s, uh, they lowered the rates dramatically. And what happened? It spurred economic growth and activity. More revenue came into the government. The same thing happened with the tax cuts that President Trump signed and the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans passed. Uh, those rates were lowered. Corporate, every individual rate was lowered. Uh, in every single bracket, the left sometimes says, oh, it was just for the wealthy folks. Absolutely not true. Every individual bracket was lowered. And what did we see? Increased growth and economic activity. More money came in. And, and, and it's worth pointing that out. We always have to point it out every single time. It's like the you know Groundhog Day or something, whenever you have these discussions about tax policy. But they're going to jack up or try to jack up the corporate rate. You mentioned that they're going to do it with this reconciliation uh, maneuver. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are familiar with that. A lot of our Americans for Prosperity and Libre Activists, we, we know how that works. But could you take a moment, because a lot of Americans think, well, wait a minute, doesn't it take 60 votes in the Senate? But on the this bill they're getting ready to do, um, they're going to try to do it with, again, it looks like on just partisan line votes, right? And and they get around it with this reconciliation feature. Could you take maybe 30 seconds, Congressman, and just explain that for folks who might not know that term? Tim, I can explain it at a superficial level. I'm afraid I don't know the, the depth. Oh, no, yeah, it, not the details, just, right. just a, in a nutshell. That's right. But, of course, my understanding, and here's the thing I think is interesting, is that I'm told that the Democrats get three bites at the apple on reconciliation. They've already used one with the so-called American Rescue Act, the $1.9 trillion bill. They'll use another one with this $2.25 trillion, whatever it turns out to be, quote, unquote, in, uh, infrastructure bill. And, uh, and then uh, that they have yet another, another, another opportunity, as I am told. But the idea is usually, because the filibuster rule in the Senate requires the uh, 60 senators to impose cloture, if you've got a very narrow advantage, and they have the narrowest of all at 50-50 in the Senate with the vice president breaking ties, uh, the reconciliation is an exception, is one of the categories that has been accepted from the filibuster rule so that they can do that. But it has to do with the passing of a budget, and, and so there's a limited number of times, and there's a limited number of subjects. As you saw in the $1.9 trillion package that they passed, originally as it passed through the House, it included a $15 minimum wage uh, requirement, and the Senate parliamentarian ruled that was not the kind of thing that could go into a budget reconciliation. It really is sort of a, it's more math than it is changes in policy. And, uh, and by the way, on that score, no comment have I heard more than the, than the note from, from people as I go around my district and everywhere that uh, Congress has, has got to quit disincentivizing people to come to work. People, businesses of all stripes cannot hire people because of the supplemental unemployment compensation, the continued extension of that 
already extended until, until September and, uh, and the continued, generally the continued massive expenditures that send people cash and they'd rather not come to work. It's, it's killing businesses. You can go to any restaurant you choose now in a place that's sort of resurgent and you'll find your wait times are going to be uh, unpleasant, you know, less pleasant than usual because they can't hire enough people. They're, they're working themselves to death. But the federal government is undermining that. Yeah. Chris, go ahead. You're muted, oh, Chris. Chris, you're on mute. You're it's on mute, Chris. Apologies, gents. Um, you know, to dig down a little bit deeper into that, not the, you know, uh, really run this thing into the ground, but, you know, in North Carolina, we're, we're experiencing that on, on a tremendous level. You know, I've spoken to many business owners here in the community, um, you know, around where I live and, you know, franchisees and small business owners, they simply can't get the individuals to, to be able to come in and, and work. And it's putting an extra strain from that angle of it too. And to talk a little bit about, you know, what does the future look like under, you know, the, the 1.9 trillion and then this infrastructure bill coming. And you mentioned earlier about um, specifically what the inflation piece is going to look like, right? I mean, we have, we have a lot of economic uh, factors going on here. And then we have this inflation potential that's sitting on top of it. Can you talk for just a second about, you know, what kind of impact is that going to have on your, your everyday Americans here as we go about our lives? You know, uh, it's funny, uh, Chris, there, there's a guy that was a big, uh, famous economist uh, and intellectual, I guess, who was in the Obama administration, Larry Summers, Harvard, I believe, Harvard University, and um, that may not be, maybe Yale, I'm one of them. Anyway, uh, he's, he's very, you know, he's not in the in the Biden administration, but he himself sounded the alarm about the prospect that the spending policies are going to have on inflation. Now, you know, because, and, and, and Tim, I'm going to combine this with what you were making a reference to earlier. So I'm going to kind of take a quick tangent. You know, you and I, Tim, are, you're probably uh, younger and healthier looking than me. But uh, anyway, we, we came along about the same time. And Ronald Reagan's, you know, uh, the, the policies, he, he slew inflation over the course of the, the brief and short and, the, and severe recession in 81, 82, 1981, 82, and then, and then pursued uh, tax cut policies that, uh, that stimulated economic growth. And really, you and I, a lot of our lives have been, have been uh, built on a prosperity of about 30 years that Ronald Reagan, followed by the first Bush administration, launched. And if you want to take the compare the situation we've been in, you go back to 2009, uh, 8, 9, and, and uh, the ensuing years of Great Recession. If you're coming along and you become a young adult at that age, and then we come out this, you know, to, to uh, 2020, and we end up with this pandemic that caused by a virus from China. Uh, and, and so you've had these big blows. We really can't afford um, to, uh, to have policies that cause additional harm to people. They need an opportunity to build wealth over a lifetime. And if we now have so massive indebtedness, $30 trillion of indebtedness by some, you know, one measure, and, and we've added, what, several trillion to it in the last year, and Democrats now are fully in control, and they're talking about ramping it further up. You look at the money supply, M1, we've doubled it in the course of a year. I mean, that's an extraordinarily scary thing to see. We did not see a lot of inflation emerge 
in the sluggish economy and recovery of the Obama years. But if you have an economy that's, that's, that's going to boom, and I think it will because it was booming before the pandemic, and you throw on top of that a tr- you know, trillions and trillions of, 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 of government spending that is paid for by printing money, uh, you are begging for an inflationary response, and uh, and it would it, it would uh, you know everyone who is a frankly a fairly modest means that set aside a nest egg to retire on it will erode if, if they're if they're conservative and they have it in mostly bonds or in cash it will erode the value of that uh, and and they'll have less to, to live on and uh, you will be in a constantly cost increasing environment where your money will go less far. And so young people will be injured as well. It is just a, it's a, it is a reckless thing to undertake, particularly when you're not undertaking it because of something essential like paying for a vaccine to end the pandemic, but you're paying for it to, you know, to help blue states like Illinois, who've always had reckless budgetary policies to, to, uh, to, to pay off or, or enhance the, uh, the uh, retirement or pension fund of unions that have not been run soundly. Uh, you're paying off, you know, you're sending $4 billion to New York City, or, or in this current thing, you're doing the latest Green New Deal idea that's not going to pan out, or, or a new clean energy idea. They say, they say they're going to be, you know, have, uh, where was that thing? They want to have, uh, you know, no carbon energy by 2035. Nobody thinks it's realistic. Everybody understands these are pie-in-the-sky dreams, and they're going to they're, they're risk the economic success of a generation or two by uh, by this reckless spending uh, that is unnecessary and that is likely to create inflation that could be could be drastically bad. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen watching, if you share the concerns, which I suspect you do, that Congressman Bishop just laid out and we shared Americans for Prosperity, take a moment, take action, click that I volunteer link Make your voice heard to your House of Representatives member and to your two senators. And I'll briefly say this. You may be thinking, oh, I know how my senators and how my House member, they're going to vote. They're going to vote the right way. They don't need to hear from me. I I would urge you to let them know you've got their back. Let them know that you're supporting what they're doing. They want to hear from constituents, from folks back home. And and likewise, if if you're in a state and and your senators are more on the liberal side, or, or in this case, Democrats, uh, and you go, well, they're going to vote for this terrible stuff anyway. They still need to hear from you. I-, I can tell you, I worked on Capitol Hill many years ago, and I know it's this way today. Members keep track on a daily basis of the number of their constituents reaching out to them on key issues. Congressman Bishop, is that, a, is that still a practice that is followed? You are absolutely right, Tim, and I'm glad you asked me because I'd like to reinforce what you're saying. You know, I think And I got to say, I've run into and talked with hundreds, maybe thousands, perhaps, of people since this last election. A lot of people are were disheartened about the election. Uh, There's a great intensity out there, and some people are worried. But there are some that sort of have a resignation about them. That is not an option, Tim. And I can tell you that um, that there is a there's sometimes a difference. I think people on the left. I hear from people on the left in my congressional office every day, and I do know what they're what they're what folks are saying. Uh, they're very disciplined about it. The resistors on the, the Trump resistors are extraordinarily persistent and aggressive. 
conservatives have to be, or libertarians must be aggressive as well. And and I and I think it's true. I I'd say send emails, send letters to your own representatives, but not only them. Uh, and I would I would cover up uh, those folks who are not engaging in bipartisan, genuine bipartisan compromise or or uh, legislative uh, work. They're, they're, they're engaging in paying off their constituencies. Make them know that you're aware of it. Uh, that's very important, uh, very important indeed. And I, and I got to tell you, uh, AFP, you guys have been a fantastic partner and grassroots organizer for, uh, for, for that kind of participative democracy. Uh, for, I, for me, it really comes to forward from about 2010 and, and uh, that sort of time frame forward when I became most aware as I sort of entered my second phase of politics in 2014. But what you do is absolutely essential. And people have to take a deep breath, get a renewed vigor and spirit and jump back into it. Stay in, stay on it and let your representatives know what you think and how important it is to your family and to your children and grandchildren that they live in a country where we, we have a stable currency and strong economy and an economy that can grow because debt load of government is not so heavy that it crushes economic vitality and opportunity. Congressman Bishop, well said. I, I couldn't add another word to that that would improve it. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard from Congressman Bishop from the great state of North Carolina. Let's take action. It's a big moment. We know that. It's a challenging moment for our nation. There are big policy battles right in front of us in Washington. Take action. Let's clear away the distractions and the things that, frankly, don't unite those of us who are supporting freedom and prosperity. Let's clear those away and let's focus like a laser beam on these policy threats coming out of Washington, D.C., and let's send a message to the Biden administration and Speaker Pelosi and Schumer. Hey, reach across that aisle. Let's find common ground. Let's not just try to jam through a far left ideological agenda using a pandemic as cover. Let's not go that route. Let's take a different route for the country. We're better than that. I'm Tim Phillips with Americans for Prosperity on behalf of Congressman Bishop and Chris McCoy, our state director in North Carolina. Good afternoon, everyone. See you later.